Hello and welcome to the weekly Bonker Roundtable. I'm Andrew Harrison. Look at this. You go away for one week and look what happens. The supply side Bonnie and Clyde, Liz Truss and Quasi Quartain crash Britain's reputation for vaguely sound economics with a splurge of tax cuts and then cancel the most egregious of them on the eve of Tory conference. How do they get out of this one? And what is the atmosphere like in Birmingham? city described by the chairman of the Young Conservative Network as a dump. Our own Marie Leconte is knee-deep in Balti, with on-the-spot insights from the Conservative equivalent of the Burning Man Festival. Plus, speed-hating. After Liz Truss's disastrous rapid-fire round of local radio interviews last week, will any politician ever dare make an Alan Partridge joke ever again? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker, our very own secretive cocktail party for shady backers and lobbyists. Quasi Quad saying not welcome, he's got his own to go to. Uh, we do owe our very existence to the generous people who fund us via Patreon, the crowdfunding site. So if you enjoy The Bunker, you can back us for as little as £2 a month. You won't get drinks with the Chancellor and we can't cut your tax, but you will get the shows early and without ads and swanky merchandise too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Right then, let's meet the panel. Marie Leconte is at Conservative Party Conference in Birmingham. Hi Marie. Hello. So we've just seen the biggest U-turn in modern politics with the 45p tax cut getting reversed. What are the vibes like right now in the perimeter where you are? Just extremely odd, to be honest. So I arrived yesterday and I kind of um, did the tour of the drinks receptions and the parties and stuff uh, last night. And I've kind of been in the conference centre today. And yeah, just fundamentally odd. But in that way, so I think, you know, about two hours ago, I was talking to a former special advisor and a currently serving uh, Conservative MP. I mean, I kind of joined the conversation and I was like, oh, well, you know, what, um, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh, you know, just trying to see who could possibly replace Liz Truss and when she when she should go. And I was like, OK, that's uh, fine. Uh, yesterday, I talked to a different Tory MP at some drinks and I was like, oh, you know, what, what are you making of, of everything that's happening? Are you going to get rid of her? And he said, oh, no, 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 like, we're not we're not going to get rid of her because, you know, she, she just has to to be better now. And I thought, okay, actually, that's quite positive. And then he finished his sentence and he went, oh, yeah, because she could not possibly get worse. And is that good? Okay. This is a political coaching equivalent of the advice to benefit claimants last week. Have you tried not being poor? Isn't it? Just be better. <laughs> um, in, exa- in a great example of the Conservative Party uh, not, not really having the common touch at the moment, Birmingham is not a dump, is it? Birmingham's amazing. It is not. And I'll tell you what. So I used to think that I didn't like Birmingham because I think that it's very fashionable for many English people to say that Birmingham is not great. And actually, like, I've done a complete U-turn, um, ironically, I suppose. <laughs> and I just really like it. So this is my second time around staying in the jewellery quarter. I am having a lovely time to the extent that I don't really want to go to the conference centre because there's many lovely cafes and restaurants and bars um, and everything's very nice. And I'm, I'm actually a big fan of Birmingham. How would you not want to be harangued about supply-side economics all day long when you could go to the jewellery quarter? More on the conference in a bit, but we also have Justin Quirk, who writes about politics, lifestyle and expensive men's shirts. Hello, Justin. Hello, Andrew. So um, speaking of reversals on a much more, you know, gigantic and important scale. Last Friday, Vladimir Putin annexes four regions of Ukraine to Russia, and then Ukraine immediately retakes one of them, the city of uh, Liman. Zelensky says Ukraine is going to return back all the occupied territory, including Crimea. What sort of new phase do you think these annexations signal? Well, it is a significant escalation. I mean, it's an attempt to rewrite the facts on the ground completely because the, you know, the facts in the battlefield have sort of run away from them. It's not just an attempt to go back to sort of pre-1989 in the old Soviet borders. I mean, it's essentially an attempt to undo the peace of Westphalia of 1648. I mean, it's essentially saying the document by which sovereign borders are respected and recognised is a thing of the past. I mean, it's a pretty vast step, but the... 
the main thing is they're essentially trying to carry out this switch by which in moving the borders, you can turn the war from a hostile one into a defensive war because mm. you can then say it's our territory that's being encroached on rather than vice versa. So it's the kind of switcheroo there. Um, the fear being that under Russia's nuclear doctrine, this could then be used as a pretext for escalating to sort of tactical nuclear weapons or something worse, which is obviously what the sort of main discussion has been about since then. I mean, the problem is with the ongoing and, you know, it's slowed slightly, but it's still enormously impressive movement, the Ukrainian army. This is very much a moving target they're dealing with at the moment. So you're now in this odd and very complicated situation where by declaring areas Russian when they are not actually under Russian control, Putin is essentially raising the prospect of either having to bomb Russian territory and by extension what he would now have to regard as Russian civilians or try and reshape the boundaries again. So right now, the Russian parliament is continuing to ratify Friday's declaration. And today, Interfax quoted Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman, saying that while Russia wanted to annex all of Donetsk and Luhansk in the eastern Donbass industrial heartland, it was, quote, continuing to consult with the population of these regions about their borders. So we've now gone slightly further through the looking glass, where not only is the actual borders of Russia now porous, but the territory they claimed back on Friday is now being sort of renegotiated in real time. God, right. Not, not a clear answer there. Not, open the not a clear answer at <laughs> yes. all. Well, that, that, one, that one will be resurfacing over and over again, of course. And this week's special guest is Richard Hayton, Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Leeds. And 35 years ago, I would have explained to him why my essay was late, because I'd been watching Run DMC at the refectory. Welcome to the podcast, <laughs> Richard. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great to have somebody from the alma mater. I mean, how is this week going to go down in British p- political history, do you think? Have we ever seen the like? Well, probably not since, well, maybe last week, I guess. Um, it seems like we, get, we get these weeks nearly every week now, don't we? Um, but yeah, this seems like it's, it's quite, a, quite a big one. Um, certainly a bad one. That's was the question we're now sort of wondering about. It's certainly bad for Liz Truss and for Kwasi Krasang, but whether or not it's terminal bad or just bad and potentially recoverable. recoverable. And um, not sure of the answer to that yet, but um, I think everyone can agree it's definitely bad, verging on very, very bad. And where do they go from here is, um, I suppose, what we're all looking at this week. I mean, this is the first time I can recall seeing the Bank of England having to rescue government from its own policies. Am I wrong to think <laughs> this is a novelty? No, I think that you're right. That pretty much is the, the situation that, that, that we've been in, which is pretty extraordinary. And also pretty extraordinary that they've managed to achieve that within 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 days, you know, within weeks. I think there's still Tory MPs taking bets on whether or not um, Kwasi Kwasang is going to last as long as Chancellor is. You know, other short-serving Conservative chancellors in recent times. We've had Nadim Zahawi and also Sajid Javid, of course. He didn't didn't last long in that role either. So um, pretty extraordinary signs. And big question for the government, obviously, in terms of, you've kind of alluded there to their, not just the political credibility, but the whole economic credibility that they're, 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 they're facing or lacking at the moment in terms of whether that is recoverable. And if not, whether we're going to be kind of paying the cost, the price of that long term in quite a big way. So we did wake up on Monday to discover that we're being spared the madness of £45 billion in unfunded tax cuts and we're getting back to the solid, stable, sensible world of £43 billion in unfunded tax cuts. Richard, the Truss and Kwarteng met with the OBR in Downing Street on Friday and the 45p tax rate policy was over by Monday. What do we know about that meeting? Were, were words had or is this purely a political calculation? I think it's a political calculation, isn't it? In that they, um, more over the, the weekend that... It's become increasingly clear they kind of realise that they, they're going to have to have a vote on this in Parliament to get it through. 
And I think they were starting to realise they just the numbers weren't there to get that vote through. So then the question becomes, well, what do you do about it? Is it better to kind of head that off now and try and bite the bullet on it now or or wait and then face it down in Parliament? So they've been, they've been sort of lining up this position that, you know, this would be a confidence issue that MPs would lose the whip and, and so on if they voted against the, the government on this. But the number of MPs who seem to be moving against it in organised by obviously Michael Gove was out, Grant Shapps were out, sort of on manoeuvres against this. The government didn't look like they had the manoeuvres, so they probably just realised that they had to back down for political reasons. And in terms of meeting with the OBR, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult one, though, isn't it? Because obviously the the line now is that obviously that these independent institutions are very important. But I mean, a week or two ago, there, there were hints that maybe the OBR might even be scrapped that this institution maybe wasn't really kind of going to be valued at all going forward. But now the government's kind of trying to emphasize that the Bank of England is very independent, the OBR role is going to be central, etc. So in some ways, the OBR, the Bank of England, maybe want to be trying to distance themselves as much as they possibly can from the government to kind of reassert that independence. So that's kind of a fine line there in terms of meeting with the government and, and being independent from it. That disappearing, now not disappearing, 45p tax rate raises about £2 billion. Do the uh, Institute for Economic Affairs and all the all the tax cutters have a point when they say it raises very little money, therefore why, why do you want to hang on to it? Yeah, I think they do. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a point. It's not um, hugely significant in fiscal terms, is it? But it is hugely sim- significant in, in symbolic terms. You know, what, what does it mean? What does it signify about the government that you, you want to try and be? And it seemed that um, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng saw that as this in the, 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 the mini budget, as the, the rabbit from his hat, wasn't it? That this was the, the extra cherry on top of his overall fiscal palette package. As you say, in terms of the, the overall package, it's not huge in in terms of a, as a proportion of that. It's, it's quite quite modest as a proportion of it, but it really demonstrated the direction travel that he wanted to go in. But then that becomes a hugely difficult political sell when you put in that alongside potentially what has been strongly indicated in terms of spending cuts, maybe benefit cuts, etc. So it's kind of a reverse Robin Hood situation, which certainly for Conservative MPs in so-called red wall seats, north of England, Midlands, parts of Wales and so on, not an easy position to have to explain to your constituents on the doorstep. So this is a a government that likes to wrap itself in Thatcherism as much as it possibly can. It's forced the Bank of England to reverse a policy of tightening monetary policy and raising interest rates. And, you know, it's now raising interest rates and printing money. What would the ghost of Margaret Thatcher say were she here? (laughs) In terms of the raising interest rates, she'd probably be in favour of that, wouldn't she? And I suppose the the, the reversal on QE was obviously discussed the liquidity crisis in the in the bond market with the you know, with the pension funds particularly having to offload gilts because of the liquidity crisis and then that kind of causing a kind of vicious cycle in, in that respect. So maybe the Bank of England, it sounds like, didn't really have any choice there in terms of you're going to have a kind of a system breakdown. So it sounds like that was very much the right thing to do. Obviously, the real question about whether they're going to be able to step back from this, they've originally they've said it's you know, just for a couple of weeks initially and that they're they want it to be time limited and limited to 65 billion pounds and so on, but it looks like that might um, well have to continue going forward. But I mean, I think that the effect of what the government has done seems to have been in terms of market expectations of interest rates have just gone up significantly, which is obviously going to cost, cost the government a lot more money in terms of the, 
the interest on their debt and it's going to cost the public a lot more money in terms of the interest on our debt, on our mortgages and other debt and so on. So not the kind of position you want to be in politically. It's kind of the opposite, I suppose, of Osborne nomics, if we could call it that. George Osborne's economic strategy of politics austerity, fiscal, um, relatively tight fiscal policy, but then with a loose monetary policy, which it certainly shielded some people from the full effects of that tight fiscal position in terms of cheap, cheaper debt, cheaper mortgages and so on, in terms of the living standards crunch, whereas um, now I suppose we're going to be facing higher interest rates and a new round of austerity. Marie, was it really Shapps and Gove who put an end to the, the top tax rate move? You know, Gove saying this is not Tory and Shapps saying uh, she'd lose a vote on it, do you think? Well, I think yes and no. I think that their main problem was that I'm not convinced they had the numbers. And it was also, so there was a really interesting study once that showed that once MPs rebel against a government once, they just find it incredibly easier to do it again and again after that. So it's it's a kind of a case of doing it once and then you kind of become a rebel for life, more or less. And I'm wondering if the thinking was not maybe along the lines of actually saying, do we really want to create that many rebels this early on in our administration because they will make our lives a lot harder? So, so I think it was generally just the sheer numbers game of so many Conservative MPs already coming out in public as well, saying, I would be ready to vote against the government on quite a big vote because that is how strongly I feel about this. I mean, in terms of people management, trust through Quartang under the bus on Laura Koonsberg on Sunday saying that the scrapping of the rate was a decision the Chancellor made. How does this bode for a future close working relationship? So I would say, actually, my favourite thing was the line they tried, I think, earlier today for about 17 minutes of like, oh, actually, the 45p cut was Chris Phillips idea, the oh, right. Secretary to the Treasury. Like, that was him. That was not us. He did a, what was it? Like, he did a paper on this and he gave it to the both of us during the campaign. And and obviously, and that did not hold for again, like you know, for even one second. But it was really funny that they tried. So I'm not, I'm not sure. So I think what I'm finding interesting is that everything I'm hearing internally about the trust quoting relationship is that actually, the way it works is that Liz says something, and then quoting may or may not disagree at the beginning, but he always, always falls in the end, which I'd not, I've not really seen reflected um, enough, I think, in the political coverage of how they're working. So. Again, you know, I, I think a lot of what's happening now is not him. That is very much, you know, he, he's not freelancing in any way. That is all 100% list trust. So I'm not I'm not quite sure how that works, really. Do you think a chancellor can, in the long term, survive this sort of embarrassment, defending the whole thing wholeheartedly, and then, it, you know, first thing on a Monday morning, having to reverse it? I would say in an ideal world, no. <laughs> uh, in the current world, why not? You know, not, nothing matters anymore. Like, we don't really have any standards for anything anymore. And I think... If we've learned anything from the Boris Johnson years, and even to an extent, I think the Theresa May years and the Cameron years, is that if you don't want to do something, you can just not do it. Or if you want to carry on doing something, you can just carry on doing it. And actually, and again, I think he's partially saved by the fact that all of this stuff is very much Liz Trust territory. So even if he were to resign, you know, what would that change really? So, So Conservative MPs really have no interest really calling for his head if what they dislike is the policies, because the policies are coming from number 10 overwhelmingly and not from the Treasury. There was a fantastic nugget from Peter Walker at The Guardian who pointed out that the U10 was done after trusted a round of ITV regional interviews, but before the embargo on the interviews. (laughs) So we got to watch a series of her defending a policy that she'd abandoned. Classic. Yeah, no, no, tremendous. Justin, what did you make of the uh, reports that uh, Kwarteng had gone to a cocktail party with his mates after the uh, announcement? It's quite a bad look, wasn't it? It's a terrible look. The more sort of conspiratorial end of Twitter is, you know, 
is this all insider trading? I mean, whether or not it's strictly inside or outside the law is kind of for the birds. I think as far as I know, there are the law is on insider trading does not exist for Forex and currency. So it's not the same as like share tipping or something like that. But I sort of think this is sort of beside the point because you know that in any other job, if you sailed that close to the wind with even the appearance of impropriety, your feet would not touch the ground. Hmm. Yeah, that's the bottom line. And I think that's the thing which they sort of forget within politics is that, you know, an enormous number of people in this country are in jobs where if they take more than five minutes to go for a piss, they're worried about getting fired. Hmm. You know, they are constantly... Certainly in this place, that's how I impose rules. Well, you're a hard taskmaster, Andrew, but the, you know... (laughs) to get the results um and you know i think so many people are living under that kind of pressure and then you look at something like this where it's like doesn't really matter whether it's strictly within you know if they're coloring slightly inside the lines who cares it's like it looks bent and i think that's the problem i mean it's one interesting thing about it is it does seem to have finally brought like flying ant day what's left of the one nation concerns is out of the woodwork. You know, we haven't seen them for about six years. And now they're up sort of saying, well, this is a terribly bad look. And uh, what about what about nurses? Has Trust finally achieved what nobody else has managed to achieve from outside the body and split it? Chris Bryant's saying it's our own parliament now. I mean, it looks that way, but I would also sort of slightly caution that given the enormously febrile state of modern politics, I would be very reluctant to write anyone or anything off. I mean, don't forget, less than 12 months ago, Labour were 10 points behind Mm. and nailed on in the polls and people were talking about a decade of Johnsonism. You know, things can reverse very, very quickly. And I think to Marie's point before, you know, we are in this sort of slightly weird looking glass environment, partly by circumstance and partly as a consequence of the last few administrations' behaviour, where sort of anything goes. But I think what they have broken is that very specific coalition which Johnson held together. Um, I think Northern Tory voters are probably feeling pretty stupid right now when they voted for levelling up. And what they're actually getting is people sitting under iea branding a conference going you know devil take the hindmost um and i the, think the listeners should know that justin <laughs> produced the middle finger there i don't think he realizes this is double, not on the television yeah. double middle fingers like yes. lemmy from motorhead the, uh, the, uh, the andrea jenkins but, yeah. you know i think voters will forgive you many things but i think one that they probably won't is the feeling that you've basically humiliated them. I mean, we should just briefly take note of the fact that it's centrist dad Christmas with Labour, this freakish 33% lead, which is clearly a bit of an outlier, but it represents a broader thing. Labour does now have a a relatively solid lead. So that 33% lead is insane. I mean, the highest in decades. Is it jinxing it to start, you know, breaking out the copies of things can only get better? No, because, I mean, many of the same structures and pressures are in place now that were there in the mid-90s. And so, you know, it could very easily happen again. But... Again, to my point, we probably said on this very show in the last 12 months, no way Labour can get over the line without the SNP. Mm. You know, that was just nailed on receive wisdom for two years. We're now on to, will Mark Francois be the one last Tory MP left in the country? (laughs) (laughs) Holding out like some sort of Japanese commando in 1947 in lots of child-sized military fatigues. Um, I think it's a... it's also worth remembering the polls themselves don't actually have a material impact. You know, Labour, I went back and checked this on the YouGov site, Labour were clocking leads up to 40 points over Major's government from January 95 onwards. And they had two years of basically a solid 35 to 40 point lead. And it still took that long for a government to uh, hold. So I'd say, yes, go up to the box in the loft and get the D-Ream CD. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't have it queued up just yet. 
Richard, just to wrap this up, I mean, before we move on to talk about the, the, the blood and guts of conference itself, where does this last sort of week of turmoil leave the so-called growth agenda? I mean, we saw Kwarteng speaking just before now, and it was, uh, we made a dreadful mistake, but growth, growth, growth. Do you think that, that you know, the, the growth agenda is still in place? It's clear, obviously, that no one disagrees, do they, that economic growth is a good thing. Well, most people don't disagree that's a good thing, and it would help solve the so many of the problems that the the government finances are facing. But it, it simply asserting that you've got an agenda for a growth, a plan for growth, doesn't mean, of course, that you've got a credible plan for growth, does it? So in terms of what really is the substance of that and whether or not it's really going to deliver in terms of, on one hand, we were being told that, you know, these tax cuts were essential to drive it forward. And then obviously the first, well, not quite the first sign of trouble, but after a, a few days of trouble, a week of trouble, the, you know, the the plans already started to unravel. And it does raise the question of you know, what are the substantial elements of the growth plan going to be? And is there going to be parliamentary support to get them through? So are we really going to see mass deregulation of the, the planning system, which might be something that would prompt economic growth, but a Tory MP is going to vote for that? I'm not really sure that they all are, so that they all would. Um, similarly on, say, um, Maybe even higher immigration would be a way that you could drive forward economic growth. But obviously, that's not something that the Conservative Party and the Conservative Party base would necessarily welcome. And smaller things like that have been strongly trailed, like deregulation of the childcare sector. Is that A, something that's going to have a big impact on growth? And B, is it something where parliamentary support is going to be there? So in terms of as much as Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have asserted that they have a plan for growth, really putting that plan into practice is going to be the the, the real test of this government. Let's take a bit of a closer look at that Tory conference, an event so awkward it makes Theresa May and all the letters falling off the wall behind her look like a flawlessly choreographed performance of Hamilton. How are we enjoying Liz Truss's final Conservative conference? Marie, the government wanted to announce a brave new era. Uh, Instead, it looks like a a weird funeral where everybody has to keep a fixed grin on their face. What have you been seeing so far outside meeting people on on night one to hear about how they're immediately going to get rid of the Prime Minister? Mostly the problem is that, because as you pointed out, you know, this was meant to be the conference where we, you know, we're going to learn about, you know, what is Liz Truss's government going to be? Like, what are the new ideas, the new policies, etc. But there's not that much of that. So I was at a reception yesterday, which uh, was addressed by Kit Malthouse, the Education Secretary. Um, and yeah, A, he clearly felt comfortable enough making a joke saying, and, you know, as, a, as the Education Secretary for the next probably <laughs> few weeks at least, um, which I think tells you a lot because he's not normally Kit Mulhouse is not, you know, that that's not a big mouth. He's normally quite a big, um, sort of like safe pair of hands. But, but also, so what I found fascinating about that is that he spent uh, most of that speech basically talking about how great Michael Gove's reforms were um, and how we should build on them. And kind of two points about that. The first one is that Michael Gove has not been education secretary for a long time now. There has been, well, about 17, I think, education secretaries since then. So it's quite striking that, you know, that that is the last one who actually had any ideas. And the second thing is obviously that, you know, politically, like Liz Truss really does not like Michael Gove at all. He was sacked by Boris. He is persona non grata at the moment um, in the leadership. But 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 clearly, you know, Kit sort of had nothing else to talk about, which I found really striking. And even, you know, when you look at more recently Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, speech, which was probably, I think, the shortest from a chancellor I've ever heard at a conference, 
where he didn't say much. We didn't learn much. I was at another reception last night where Liz Truss uh, gave a speech to very much the kind of party faithful in the parliamentary party, etc. And she sort of just repeated what she'd said on Laura Koonsberg. Um, you know, she didn't really say anything new at any point. So it's more that I think that that's the really puzzling thing where we've been promised this kind of, you know, massively revolutionary sort of, you know, government that is going to be a complete break from every other conservative era of the past 12 years. But there's nothing really being announced apart from, again, the, the few things that were announced in the mini budget and that were not welcomed warmly, it's fair to say. So, yes, very odd. It is weird as well to see who is pointedly not there. Sunak, Sajid Javid, David Davis, Mel Stride, who's the chair of the Treasury Select Committee. On the one hand, it looks like team I told you so. And on the other hand, it's like it looks like she's already lost control of the party by being so um, factional with their appointments. She seems to have pissed off the very people that she might quite like right now to have on her side. Yes, and I think so. What I will say is that what I think should be even more worrying for number 10 is the number of MPs who were meant to go and then the last minute decided not to come. So I think quite a few cabinet ministers, so Alex Sharma is not there. Uh, Simon Clark, I believe, is not there. He was meant to be there. And and yeah, so interestingly, I've had quite a lot of that. So A, you know, I was meant to, like, for example, I was meant to have a minister on a panel I'm chairing tomorrow. He cancelled two days before conference, uh, didn't really get a reason. I was talking to a few other people who said, oh, yeah, you know, like, it, it has kind of become a refrain of, oh, yeah, that coffee I was meant to have with that minister, that drink I was going to have with that MP, et cetera, et cetera, has been cancelled because that MP has decided not to go anymore and you know and all of that stuff was stuff that was organized at most two weeks ago and um, so I think it, it's more that for me I think there was always going to be a faction that was not going to go and going to say very loudly they were not going to go but what feels unlike pre like previous years is the number of people who very quietly were like you know what this is in 48 hours and I have changed my mind I am staying at home have fun in Birmingham. It's, it is kind of weird to pull a diary clashes job when this thing has been in the diary since God knows when. <laughs> Raymond Shishti blew it out as well. When they've lost Raymond Shishti, this is just a disaster. Any favourite bits so, so far, uh, Marie? I, mean, I, I particularly liked uh, Andrea Jenkins, Education Minister Andrea Jenkins, saying the current system would rather our young people get a degree in Harry Potter studies than in construction and said it's filling them with social Marxism. I thought it was quite a good bit. Oh, God, I saw that. And I was like, like the DfE is so... Like, I, I don't understand what happened there. So they've got Andrew Jenkins at um, Higher Education. Jonathan Gullis, as well, is a junior minister there. And he is mental. Like, I, you know, this is one of those... Like, I would not really say that about many MPs, especially on a public platform, but he really, really is. Uh, no, so I think the, the thing that's still stuck in my head is actually um, the Conservative Home reception last night, so that the one where Listras gave a speech. So before she launched into a very boring bit about nothing at all, really, uh, she kind of opened with a joke, which I didn't quite get. So I think it was quite a niche joke about the Conservative Home website. Um, and no one laughed, but I, I could not overemphasize the extent to which you could have heard a pin drop in that room of, again, Conservative MPs, Conservative members, etc. And, and she did that very listrust thing as well of staying silent for slightly too long, waiting for the laughter, and no one at all laughed. And it was like, oh, man, you're you're screwed. Like, you're really screwed. This is bad. These are the moments when you expected to bang the mic and say, is this thing on? You hear from a lot of places they're given the impression of, of having accepted that they've already lost the next election. Is that the vibe you're getting? Yes. Yeah, so I think Conservative MPs don't necessarily come out and say it to journalists, I would say, uh, in, in quite those words. But there does seem to be a feeling of, you know, it's, it's more basically that like we've run out of road. Like, wh- where do we go now? Um 
and and because you could argue as well that I think Boris was already the kind of like bonus prime minister of like oh god we kind of feel like we've tried quite a lot of stuff nothing's worked fine you know let's use the the one wild card that we've kind of been keeping aside for quite a long time um and then you know list trust are lots of people like there are very very few people I think who sincerely wanted list trust to be prime minister anyway lots of them just backed her because they wanted a job and she was clearly going to win from quite early on so so I think from the moment she won anyway quite a few MPs were maybe cautiously optimistic that she could make it work. But now, yeah, the, the mood seems quite resigned and saying, you know, like, let's do what we can for now. But with that understanding that actually it is quite unlikely that um, they will win the next election. It just feels to me like kind of like the fifth minute of injury time when, and you know you're getting relegated. <laughs> so all you do is just try and get the opposing side sent off or maybe break the leg of their star player. Justin, um, we, we listened to Kwasi Kwarteng's speech, which was just like being shouted at. There wasn't anything new in there. What did you make of it? The good bit was it was very short. Mm. Um, so I managed to you know, listen to it on the train journey. I mean, it was strange. It was sort of a bit of a vacuum for speech. It kind of got to the end and you're a bit like, we hasn't actually said anything. You know, this is like the centrepiece, you know, sort of financial speech. I mean, if you're sort of picking through the sort of fine print of it, I mean, there's lots of quite pointed digs at the past regime. You know, I think he's mentioned twice about this sort of slow managed decline that he thought England was in, which sort of made you think as well, like, I hope Kwasi Kwarteng doesn't get hold of these guys who've been in power for the last 12 years because yeah. sort of everything he was bringing up about, you know, slow managed decline, low expectations, Britain relegated, sort of this middling power. You're like, you've been in charge for the last 12 years, pal. Mm. You know, this is sort of on you. Um, also, I thought bit soon to be making the jokes about, you know, <laughs> had a little bit of turbulence. It's like, yeah, you've just jacked the largest monthly rise in government debt interest since 1957, which we're all paying for. Butterfingers. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy what, me. What am I like? Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought so. Slightly misjudged, terrible speaker, has trust this thing as well of not seeming to understand punctuation or intonation or how you sort of rise or fall at the end of a sentence. Mm. Um, not quite the same level of Pinterest pauses that the all-time <laughs> great Liz delivers in abundance. But um, yeah, pretty bad. In the middle of the conference, Young Party uh, faithful member Dominic Cummings tweeted, Time to close Rotten Tory Party, close CCHQ, ditch brand, rebuild with new principles, new people, new institutions, new tech, start up 2023, take over after collapse 2024, beating Starmer the easy part. Um, you excited for Dom's Toffrey Red Wall Plain Man's Tech Startup Party? Um, firstly, is this Dominic Cummings related to the Dominic Cummings who played a major part in foisting all these dickheads and their pet politicians on the country? Don't know. Could be the same, probably just a coincidence. Um, yeah, also, I mean, I, I tweeted this earlier. I'd like to say, is there a single problem to which Dominic Cummings' solution is not smash everything up, redo it the way I would, details mm. TBC? Yeah. Which just seems to be his stock answer for absolutely everything. I would be really interested to see what it looks like, but I wouldn't want to see it anywhere near power. Well, I think we sort of tried it, didn't we? And it was just, and, and again, this comes up to a point I've made a few times on the show that if you've ever worked in a normal company, yes. like all these sort of radical free marketeers have conspicuously not done, Dominic Cummings is a completely unremarkable character. You know, you and me have worked in many of the same media companies yes. where there has been a bloke exactly like Dominic Bastard Cummings mm. on every single floor. The bloke who's hired thinks the job he has been hired to do is somewhat beneath him, so leaves that undone and carries on with some absolute fucking harebrained project that yeah. he just starts up and Let's leaves Let's replace all finished. the desks with trampolines. That'll get yeah. people's ideas flowing. Let's hub all the production desks. Like, yeah. Oh, no, it's not working. Let's go back in. Let's sack and, all the editors. Yeah. yeah. So in, in that sense, and this, this is sort of the most 
depressing slash funny thing about Dominic Cummings. For this sort of self-styled iconoclast and rebel, he is the most tedious, predictable, boring figure to anybody who has actually worked in private enterprise. Richard, just to wind up, I mean, the FT did a brief mapping of different countries on the political uh, axes this week and found that since uh, Liz Truss took over, the Conservatives are now the most economically right-wing party in the developed world, further right than the American Republicans, further right than Bolsonaro in Brazil. And yet the average Tory voters on 4.2, they are miles away even from their own voters. What happens to parties when they detach from the electorate like that? Well, I guess that's the, you're going to face the inevitable, aren't you, in terms of you're getting too far away even from your core support. And then obviously the problems of, particularly when you're also losing the, the confidence in terms of whether or not you even have a sense of knowing what you're doing. So maybe if you could project with greater conviction that you do have a, a, a steady hand on the tiller and that you've got a clear plan which is leading somewhere, maybe you could take people in that direction um, a bit more persuasively but at the moment they seem to really be be lacking that yeah going forward from here i mean i thought kwatang's speech was interesting in that he obviously didn't on one level didn't really say anything new but then on the other hand he was seemed like to me he was maybe trying to draw a line in the sand in terms of his okay he's, he's undone the 45p mistake he tried to make a bit of a joke about that which seemed like kind of completely the wrong tone to take on that but anyway then he was trying to kind of defend the rest of the package but he was also trying to say uh, to reassure markets you know the last thing he wanted was for you know sterling to be crashing or something as he was speaking and so he was including all these phrases about i think at one point did he say something like he was going to have ironclad fiscal discipline and he referred quite a few times to that, that kind of fiscal discipline so it's kind of like he's realized that as much as he's got faith in markets the markets didn't have faith in him and he wanted to kind of reverse that obviously that implies he doesn't want to change any of his other tax plans he kind of intimated that he would still like to do some other tax cuts if he possibly could but maybe not for a while so the only thing he's got left is massive public spending cuts which is again not where public opinion tends to be at and particularly on the back of as you say, the previous administration, which they kind of don't want to associate with the Conservative administration that they've all supported. And obviously has been substantial austerity in a lot of the public sector already. So there's a lot less left to cut, which raises questions about what can they do next. Now, a little bit of something different. If you enjoy The Bunker and our other shows like Doomsday Watch, you may well enjoy an intriguing show from elsewhere in the podcasting universe. It's called Dotcom The Hacking. It's not one of ours. It's produced by Crowd Network, and it's a documentary series looking at the weird corners of the digital universe where startups meet politics, meet crime and international rivalry. Series three is out now. It's about ransomware, those programs that try to lock up your computer system unless you pay them a fortune in Bitcoin. And it's presented by friend of all of our podcasts, Katie Puckrick. And she's here with now hi Katie how are you doing I'm doing great this podcast this is the third series of dot com the hacking yeah you've covered Wikipedia and Reddit in the past why did you and the team decide to focus on ransomware in particular and now in particular well every time we return to the dot com family we're kind of ratcheting up the sinister level we started off with Wikipedia which is all very lovely and crowdsourcing and rather benign but it seemed to lead us in a delicious breadcrumb trail to the more nefarious side of what can happen in the internet. And uh, ransomware is a story that has gone from seeming a little sci-fi 
to something that can affect ma and pa businesses and also has a geopolitical element, Mm. which has really come into play since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. It is big world-spanning stuff. It's a fantastic podcasting story with all these threads coming together. Episode one's about how Russian cyber criminals paralyzed the Rotunda Maternity Hospital in Dublin. And this has got real human effect, you know, Newly born babies and pregnant women are absolutely seriously put at risk by this. Episode two, you go into the Ukrainian hackers who are exposing the Russians. It made me look at this and go, why is this not the subject of a massive BBC documentary? Because it ought to be. I think this is one of these topics that's kind of snuck up on people because it was hard to see to begin with the the human cost. And so obviously when newborn babies and mothers are at risk, you can see the cost. Or when uh, the energy and utility structures of a nation or even a city are put at risk. You can see the human cost. But because it's done in the shadows, you think, what is there to look at? And really, it's the kind of banality of evil because the people who are actually doing the hacking, they don't even know the cost. Mm. So they just know that they're getting their paycheck, which can be substantial. It can be starting off at 2,000 pounds a month and it can go up to 10,000 pounds a month. But I don't know what there is to look at because the thing about these gangs is that they come together like a school of fish and then equally can disperse like a school of fish. They just sort of disappear and then they reconfigure in a a different formation with the same tools and technology. So yes, it is something that affects everybody, but in kind of a a spider webby, almost invisible way. So I don't know what you look at on it's, a television yeah, like, show. One of your guests said, like, one of the main things about these guys is it's not a, it's not some kid in a black hoodie in a dark room tippity-tapping away on a, on a keyboard. The way it's presented in every single spy drama, it's like, in many respects, it's like just distributed people in internet cafes and laptops. Yeah. The thing that interested me and fascinated me was that the thread on all these things, it all points back to Russia. Based in Russia and Russia kind of adjacent countries, often prosecuting the aims of the, of the Russian state. Is the Kremlin effect? using ransomware as a kind of deniable freelance arm of warfare. Michael Daniel, who was the cybersecurity advisor to Barack Obama, uh, says it's definitely in Russia's interest to support the ecosystem. And in fact, more recently, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, says this is one of the key questions for them. What he says is, when do criminal actors become agents of their host nation. And so I think with regard to Russia, this is what I heard from everybody I spoke to on this podcast series. It it doesn't hurt Putin to allow this to happen because his whole MO is to sow chaos. Mm. And Russia is a huge country geographically, but they don't have cash. You know, they're a very small economy. But what they can do is just fuck shit up for everybody else. That is why these ransomware gangs are so valuable to Putin. So he's just going to kind of shrug and go, oh, what can you do? You're like me. Your background's not in investigative journalism. You're a presenter and an interviewer type of person. How's the experience been for you making the podcast? Well, it's interesting because this is a topic that I think... Had I not been forced to get my head around it, do my homework, and then meet these very interesting people and have these great conversations, I think I would have just felt like it was beyond me. And the thing that I found so interesting is that basically people can find their passions anywhere. Mm -hmm. So the white hat hackers who are helping everyone from uh, educational centers to supermarkets to corporations to countries to help identify where they might have some sort of 
uh, insecurities and, and foibles and failings in their security system, in their IT system. They love it because it's puzzle solving and they're nerds. And also the people who are trying to hack into those same systems are also puzzle solving, but they also want the additional motivation of having a fancy watch or a Lamborghini or some pretty spicy drugs. So that's what comes with those crime capers, but they're going to get snuffed out sooner or later. Well, it's a fascinating list, and I really enjoyed it. It's called Dot Com The Hacking. Series 3 is out now from Crowd Network. Have a listen when you finish with The Bunker. Katie, thanks for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. Finally, who enjoyed Liz Truss's world tour of BBC local radio stations last week? Anybody who was expecting some light mid-morning matters-style chat about your favourite biscuit... Maybe the handlers at Conservative Central Office thought that was on the agenda, was brought up short when the Prime Minister was treated brutally by presenters from BBC Radio's Kent, Bristol, Lancashire, Norfolk, inevitably, and of course Leeds. It was very hard to tell what was worse. Trump's attempting to read the same prepared answers out to eight different presenters, all of whom had heard the show she'd just done, or the yawning silences when they caught her out. Justin, what did you think? Did you listen to the BBC Supercut? Do you know, Andrew, I honestly couldn't get through the whole thing. I tried <laughs> listening to it and it was like this looping anxiety dream of these sort of cavernous pauses and shuffling bits of paper. And it's running of like, you know, in a, like Nicholas Rogue's film, Don't Look Now, mm-hmm. like when they meet the creepy old women who occasionally just zone out and can see their like dead child. Like there was something of that about it where you were like, is she, is she still with us? Is she still in the room? Has, is she having an absence? I, yeah, has it having a, a moment? Um, yeah, I found it so... Like I could just feel the sort of like pit of my stomach gripping as she just sort of floundered. It was like watching someone drown. It was awful. Yeah. I mean, among the highlights were being asked by BBC Radio leads, where have you been? And BBC Radio, I mean, I should have got the names of these presenters down, but they were all fantastic. BBC Radio Bristol. So the Bank of England's intervention is the fault of Vladimir Putin, is it? It was just kind of, there's something paralysing about it. I mean, that the... BBC Leeds on that was Reema Ahmed. Yes. Um, absolutely fantastic. And particularly because it came on the back of this amazing sort of rope-a-dope intro where she went full soft soap, local radio, setting her up, asking her if she slept well, how her day was, and then bam, like, detailed the total implosion of the economy and then... Where have you been in that amazing, yeah, yeah, amazing yeah. Yorkshire accent? Um, James Hansen on BBC Bristol was really good as well. I thought he was only backed her into a corner by which she was ended up blaming the Bank of England interventions on Vladimir Putin. Mm. There was the fracking one in uh, Lancashire where, again, it's like, don't go on local radio and try and get right in the weeds of a very, very local story because just by the nature of the beast, you will not know the subject as well as them. Paul Mason really showed himself up uh, when he tweeted that it was going to be Operation Rolling Partridge, where a bunch of sleep-deprived non-expert presenters will throw her soft questions. I mean, that is pretty much the opposite of what happened. Yeah, completely. And I think, to be fair, I think... He made the same mistake that I think a lot of people did before those interviews. Including Les Truss. Include, well, very much including Les Truss and her entire comms team. And I think it was the mistake in Mason's case and theirs of people who haven't listened to local radio in about 15 years. Yeah. Because I think probably with a few exceptions with things like local radio in Liverpool and Manchester, in the past there was that hierarchy. The problem now for politicians, which I think you've just had illustrated in the most brutal way imaginable is that there isn't really any such thing as local radio because it's with streaming culture once these things are out there it's not like the old days i went and did you know have my ass handed to me on radio leads it's done no one's going to hear it again it's out there anyone can hear it anywhere and as you say the 
the dynamic of the interview is completely different. Like it's partly because you say they inevitably know the ground much better than the person they're interviewing. They've got a listenership they're much more beholden to. They've got a huge chance to make their name. And then I think the crucial thing is that they know that in reality, Liz Truss is not coming back to Radio Leeds anytime soon. So they don't need to play nicely to maintain any, any sort of access. And they all absolutely excelled themselves. I remember Nadine Dorry saying Nick Robinson has cost the BBC a lot of money after he was a bit terse with Boris Johnson. If she'd been here for this, I think she probably would have called for the outlawing of journalism or something. I think they'd, they'd public been, hangings. I think they'd been cementing up the doors of Broadcasting House <laughs> by ten p at ten a.m. Marie, what did you think? Did you uh, enjoy this? Great moments in local radio journalism. Well, actually, I regret to say that I'm probably going to have to repeat what Justin said nearly point by point in that I also did not listen to all of it because it was just like I get really bad secondhand anxiety and it was just really, really hard to get through. Um, so, no, so I, I listened to a few clips, um, but that was it, I regret to say. Like, even the transcript, which was very stressful. Yeah, you wanted to play the Curb Your Enthusiasm music over all of it, didn't you? Um, Richard, Leeds came out of it really well. Rima Ahmed, as, as uh, just as just pointed out, apart from don't walk into local radio having not prepared anything at all, are there other comms lessons, do you think, from this? Yeah, I think uh, Liz Trust, yeah, she should have just kind of gone on Peston or something like that, shouldn't she? Kind of, um, and the, the, the kind of, the, the, the waffly Westminster bubble interview would have suited her to better, but... And it, with Leeds, I was listening on Radio Leeds when it happened, and um, obviously Liz Truss had mentioned like about nine million times in the leadership election that she had been to school in Leeds. She was kind of very pleased about this, and then um, kind of to be so spectacularly undone so quickly was was, was not a good look, was it? Um, but yeah, no, I think Justin's right in terms of what he said. Obviously, the way that the local media just kind of intersects with the the social media, doesn't it? And she was you know barely on to interview three when the clips from Radio Leaves were already kind of been played. And I think on one of the clips you could hear almost like one of her kind of advisors desperately trying to hand her an answer. <laughs> and uh, she was um, as if probably kind of realising <laughs> that things were going on. And then she, she was obviously trapped in this this commitment um, to do, did you say, was, was it eight or ten of these interviews? She has to yeah, keep keep ploughing on for an hour, which is pretty pretty hard thing to do, and particularly when you kind of feel like you're floundering, you can't quite remember what you've said to which interviewer, and um, it just kind of went from from bad to worse, really, didn't it? It's like white water rafting. Like once you're through the first one, you've already made an absolutely terrible <laughs> yeah. mistake, but there's no way out. You've just got to go through all the seven. way to the end. Yeah. Well, the thing that I mean, apart from the kind of comedy value of it, one thing really stood out to me was that many of the interviews produced examples of local deprivation people having a really really hard time and these are direct quotes from local listeners with names attached and even the most inept uh, politician will say i'm really sorry to hear that you're in that situation we are doing all we can for you i hope it works out for your kids we're working night and day for you and she didn't have the native kind of wit or empathy just even to do that basic hygiene factor of say you're sorry that people are having a hard time. She just attempted to reread over and over again prepared pieces. But I genuinely think with her terrible delivery with those long pauses, I think that's part of the issue is that often you see when she's asked a question, there's almost a second of like, why am I supposed to care about this? Mm. Like not not in a sort of callous way, but I almost feel it's like a sort of slightly robotic, like what is this earth thing you call love? <laughs> I mean, but it, and you see that when whenever she's interviewed, there is this brief moment of, and it's buffering. Yeah. 
or the, or the numbskulls in her head running around <laughs> opening the drawers and going, be sad because this is a sad There's thing. like paper spewing out of printers yeah, out there. But... anger in the ear department. Uh, well, I mean, look, it, whatever else, it was a really good moment for uh, local journalism. And I think the horrible statistic is since 2005, at least 265 regional newspapers have closed down. And it's tended, you know, we it's just tended to be well. That's the way it's going. This has shown that like properly informed local reporters who know their stuff can absolutely mix it with you know the supposedly big boys and outperform them. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, local media is really important, isn't it, in our kind of democracy? In terms of it is a, a genuine conduit between people and um, politicians and between elites, if you like. It's um, in a way that the kind of Westminster media inevitably kind of struggles to be. So, I mean, I suppose kudos to the fact for Liz Truss for actually agreeing to do this, although I guess it's probably the last time <laughs> she ever will. <laughs> I think it's the last time she'll be invited. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the smart move will be to bin off the Coonsberg programme and just rotate it with all the local people. You know, to run uh, today, you know, th- this weekend, Sunday Politics is coming to you from BBC Radio Merseyside. Here we go. Billy Butler in the house. Hold your plums. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of The Bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the books, films, TV shows or culture in general that have enabled them to take their minds off the horrific world of politics this week? Marie. I have been reading a novel called Higher Ground by Anke Stelling, who is a German author, um, and it is just incredibly good. It's um, it's really written in the voice of uh, this woman who I'm guessing is in her sort of like late 40s, early 50s. And she's writing it as a letter to her daughter, who's a teenager, kind of telling her the way the world really works and how everything really functions, etc. But is a kind of also an autobiography of that woman. And it's just, you know, one of those where you're just like, this is just tremendous writing. And yeah, and kind of putting words onto things I've long thought, etc. Like, it's really, really good. No, fantastic. Expressing the thoughts you've had but could never articulate. Yes, that, that's, yeah, better. Fine. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Um, Richard, how about you? What's your escape route? Well, this week in my house, we've been getting into the TV miniseries um, We Own This City. I don't know if anyone else has watched it, um, which is um, kind of, I think it's based on a book, but it's um, and kind of real life events. It's a bit it's sort of a, a no-holds-bar version of The Wire, basically, about kind of corruption in the Baltimore um, Baltimore Police. So it's it's not exactly easygoing, light-going, but it's certainly diverting. And um, after the first two episodes are just so complex and that, that it sort of starts you re- to really win. It's not exactly light entertainment, but it's certainly um, sort of a distraction from the bin fire of British politics. It's brilliantly well done, though, isn't it? It's uh, it's uh, John Berntall uh, at the head of the the, the local uh, firearms squad, I think, isn't it? And uh, put together the, the series is put together by the Wire team, and you it's a very Wire approach to you know a, an infamous episode of police corruption and quite you know a massively relevant one right now yeah yeah absolutely and it's um yeah it's, i totally recommend it it's really good viewing fantastic justin what's yours uh, i've been digging through the uh free sections on the bfi player site ah. uh, and particularly they've got uh loads of really really good documentaries from the lwt the london weekend television minorities unit from the early 80s mm-hmm. which is an absolute gold mine if you're obsessed with kind of weird underbelly 
counterculture London in the 80s. A couple of standouts, really good ones on the Sikh community in Southall after the Southall riots. That was really good. And then uh, an amazing one about gay London in 1980, which includes incredible footage from inside Heaven Nightclub in 1980. Amazing. Early high energy nights under Colhearn Leather Pub in uh, Earl's Court. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Loads of all these little 25 minute sort of vignettes of kind of London life from the early 80s, but well worth digging through. Fantastic. Well, my escape route went catastrophically wrong because I was trying to take my way myself away from uh, politics in Britain by going to New York to go and see New Order and the Pet Shop Boys. And I found that a round of drinks in Madison Square Garden, three beers, cost me $60, which is now £60. £60 for three pints. So my attempt to get away from the pound crashing and all the rest of it um, came you know, right up at me. As uh, I bought what I hope is the most expensive brand I'll ever buy in my life. And that would also have been horrible, weedy, uh, frothy American lager as well, wouldn't it? It was at least a decent pint of Goose Island IPA. I'll give them that. Yeah. But 20 quid a pint? This is where 12 <laughs> years of uh, neoliberalism and so on has really brought us to. Brought us to our knees. Thanks a bunch, Tony Blair. <laughs> and that's the end of this week's bunker. <laughs> Thank you, Marie LeCant. Thank you. Thank you to Justin Quirk. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you to our special guest, Richard Hayton. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Been great to have you on. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And the full-length show will be here this time next week, where we will also have some exciting and interesting news for all listeners. So we'll see you here in a week's time. If you like what we're doing, you can support us on the crowdfunder Patreon, of course. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how and what you'll get. And when you do back us, among the things you do get is a shout-out on the show, like these. Hello, and a big thanks from me to my sinister private equity chums, Lizzie Edwards, Bob Forbes, Lucy Tatner and Emma Tonnard. Big thanks from me to Wendy Barker, John Hymas, Alex Rushforth and Amy Luce. And hello from me and huge thanks to Ruth Kroll, Preben Goldberg, Phil Lewis and Jeff Clark. We'll see you next week. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Justin Quirk and Marie Leconte. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production by Kasia Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.